What's up, everybody? It's time for another Ghost Cult Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Keefe. Today's podcast is an interview with Matt Harvey of Exhumed. Exhumed's new album, Horror, comes out October 4th from Relapse Records. Check it out. Welcoming back to the Ghost Cult podcast, it is the man, Matt Harvey of Exhumed and a jillion other bands. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing good, man. Thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, whether in person or over the phone, man. I love chatting with you. And uh, especially when we have an awesome new Exhumed album to talk about, Horror, perfectly named, perfectly sounding, <laughs> comes out October 4th from, of course, Relapse Records. Let's dive into this record, man. What a great record to have. It's right in time for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we usually kind of coordinate our, our releases around Halloween, it seems like. <laughs> We're just on that cycle, I guess. It does, man. It does. Uh, and what a good record it is to have for the, the best holiday of the year, man. It's just brutal. It's just all kinds of gnarly, uh, terrific song titles, terrific performances, probably your best vocals ever, some of the best guitar work ever I've heard in the band. Um, it seems like here's a good place to start with, you know, for as consistent the band as you, you know, uh, you know, so your entire arc of all your music as consistent as you've been, you have guitar players like Spinal Tap has drummers. They seem to explode. Um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, not that you can't keep one. And I'm sure I know, you know, we've met and you're cool to hang out with and I'm sure you're easy to work with. But for some reason, either guitar players leave your band to go to others or you just get in somebody else. You got Sebastian, formerly of Noisem. Let's talk about a little bit of lineup change uh, in the band now. Yeah, well, um, Sebastian is—he's still playing with Noisem. Just to make that clear, um, uh, Sebastian was the the perfect replacement for Bud. The thing with Bud was, you know, uh, I've known Bud for about like twenty five years now, and um, you know, we always get along. It worked well together. He always played great. He just, uh, you know, he just—I think got tired of the tour schedule. And he lives in North Carolina and uh, he's recently married and so on and so forth. And, you know, we would just kind of get offers. And he's like, no, I can't really do it. And then, you know, after like three or four days turning down, I'm like, well, this is going to be a problem, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, basically we kind of gave him a little bit of time uh, to see if he wanted to come back full time. And, and we had Sebastian do a couple tours with us and Sebastian worked out really well, and Bud's situation didn't really change, so we went ahead and, and made the switch and brought Sebastian in full-time. Uh, so it was a really easy, seamless transition. We've known uh, Sebastian for a few years now, and, uh, you know, we had enough time to kind of, you know, hang out together when we toured with Noisem, and then when he came as a, a you know, on a fill-in basis, you know, we had enough time to make sure that everybody was going to work and we were going to get along and that we had the same philosophy and, you know, the the difference, I guess, the main difference between Sebastian and the rest of us is that we're in our 40s and he's in our 20s. Uh, and, you know, not that that was a major concern, but it was just, you know, something that, we were all aware of like, huh, you know, is this, is he going to be on a totally different wavelength than us or whatever? Um, luckily we're, we're pretty easy going and we're relatively fun for a bunch of middle-aged guys, I guess. Yeah. We still, we still drink, we still party and, you know, get into mischief and stuff. So it's not like, uh, uh, being on tour with your dad, I guess for him. <laughs> nice. So it's, uh, it's worked out really well. And, um, he's a great player, great guy. And like I said, we have the same kind of, 
philosophy. And that was important to me because there's a lot of shredders out there playing death metal, but they're, they're not really coming from a similar place that, that I am. And, and that was really crucial. And it's sort of ironic that we had to find a 25 year old to, uh, kind of be like, you know, share influences from, you know, Richie Blackmore and, and Uli Roth and Gary Moore and all these guys from the seventies that I'm more into. So, it, it, but it worked out great. You know, but it's funny you say that because I hear some of that lyrical guitar playing in your solos and I hear that stuff as, you know, I know that everybody associates you with these great technical <laughs> death metal riffs, but you, I hear like beautiful solos all the time in your work, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm more of a, I don't know, I, I come from more of a, a rock approach, I guess, you know, in and not a, like a tech kind of approach. To me, I think exhumed not so much this album, but I think we've done some stuff that to me is like, wow, this is really technical death metal, but obviously compared to tech death, like we're quite primitive. But compared to the records that I was listening to growing up, like Severed Survival and, and Harmony Corruption or whatever, our stuff is pretty involved. And, um, you know, the leads, I, I, I try to always kind of come from a place of striving for something memorable. And a lot of those guys, the rock guys, you know, you're Ace Fraley and, and Glenn Tipton and Uli Roth and stuff, they're more, they just do stuff that's maybe a little bit more memorable than, than Total Shred. And that's what appeals to me more, I guess, as a listener, you know. Oh, killer, man. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, a little Napalm Death nod there with Harmony Corruption because I don't want to miscategorize the album as any kind of grindcore, but there's definitely like <laughs> something going on in the in the water out there on this record because like it's like very tight songs, a couple of really blip and you miss it, seven seconds, utter mutilation of your corpse. I mean, like there's a couple of them that are like, whoa, super fast and really cool. I mean, Napalm has always been one of our absolute biggest influences. People have always kind of honed in on the carcass thing because of our lyrical themes. But, uh, you know, I guess when I was getting into both bands, it's kind of when they had the most in common, which is like 1989, you know. Mentally Murdered is probably, you know, Napalm's most death metal-ish kind of record. And Symphonies of Sickness, you know, still has very much that grindcore kind of punk influence. So that's really the stuff that, from that scene, I think that resonates the most with me still is that sort of, you know, 87 through 90. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm definitely, I have no problem hearing that Napalm was an influence on the record because they've been an influence on all our records and especially this one. So, sure yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just didn't want anyone to think that you took like a heel turn and now you guys sound like Pig Destroyer, your label mates. So, which wouldn't be a bad thing, but, it, you know, uh, I, I think you guys do what you do. Uh, Dead Meat is another one that's like, wow. You know, <laughs> that thing is whoa, quick and, you know, blink and you miss it, but it's also great. Um, you know, uh, was it was a sort of a, a thing. You know, you've always had kind of tight songs, though. No fat in the in the songwriting. So I think it shouldn't be a total surprise that you have kind of like a very short record. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's just really stripped down. And um, you know, the last album, Death Revenge, was kind of like how many things can we possibly add and still have it be an exhumed record? And then this record is sort of how many things can we possibly take away and still have it be an exhumed record? You know, um, it's just sort of. You know, we've always had similar influences. We just kind of lean in different directions on different albums, you know. Uh, and this one is really more back into Terrorizer, Napalm, Repulsion, Cryptic Slaughter, 
early DRI kind of, you know, really in your face, no, no filler, um, get in, you know, break a few bones and get out and do it again on the next song. Hopefully. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. Uh, and I wanted to talk a little, you know, obviously lyrics always very well thought out and well done. And as I mentioned at the top, your vocals are just insanely great on this album, I have to say. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, you're welcome, man. <laughs> really stepped up. Uh, you'd always seem to be improving something about the band, but your vocals is the thing that really jumped out to me. Uh, Raven is Cadaver, Scream Out in Fright. And they're all a little bit different. The Red Death is not the same as, you know, Ripping Death. They're different kind of vocals <laughs> in every song, you know? Right. <laughs> well, we try to, you know, uh, I mean, that, that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, in, in doing this kind of music in general is trying to find a way to give each record and each song and each, you know, bit sort of its own, you know, something that justifies its existence. Because, you know, when you're really dealing with sort of limited ingredients, no vocal melodies, you know, this album doesn't even have any like guitar harmonies <laughs> or anything. Um, how do you make each thing? worthy and how do you make it um, memorable and, and you know you don't want to just write materials to fill up space you know think like oh we got a CD it's 70 minutes long so we better just come up with more shit it's like hopefully every moment counts you know um, at least that, that's the way it's designed so thank you for that you're welcome man and I think also something about having sort of a veteran's touch as a writer I think a lot of younger bands don't know how to edit themselves like this is not good enough I'm gonna you know like nobody is that voice of reason and you have made enough albums you have been you know, in enough bands that you know how to do that yeah and I think it's not just I mean it's certainly not just me it's you know everybody in everybody in the band I think has free editorial reign I mean even though I'm sort of the main songwriter or whatever. Um, I, I'm, I have no problem throwing stuff away and starting again. And, you know, I, if anybody doesn't think that something's good enough, like, I want to hear it. I don't want people to be like, well, you know, I guess we're just going to do this riff, even though everyone except the guy that wrote it thinks it sucks. You know, I I want it to be good. And it's like, it's way better to have a situation where, where people are, are able to veto you know, too many vetoes is better than too many people just accepting stuff for, for no reason. And, uh, you know, we've all made a bunch of records. I mean, even Sebastian, as young as he is, I mean, knows him just throughout the third record already. So, you know, he's not exactly a, a, a spring of a chicken as maybe his age might imply. So it's, it's good to have a bunch of people with a bunch of experience and a bunch of different perspectives so we can, you know, chop off anything that's not, you know, up to snuff. Chop it off like a limb, dude. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, how, how fitting. And of course, yeah, I mean, yeah, Ross and Mike have been actually in with you. I made a joke about Sebastian and exploding guitar players, but, you know, obviously Mike and Ross have been, they've been around and they've been with you now for quite a while. So that's got to be like really, uh, you know, helpful to have people you rely on and trust. Yeah, no, it's really nice. I mean, uh, because I think we all we're all old enough to to get along and not you know where our egos get in the way and we all respect what we've done together and also you know individually obviously mike has a long discography with deeds of flesh and a couple of records of vile and then you know ross has been impaled and Ludicra and the other band that everyone knows that he's in but i'm not supposed to say that he's in um and so on and so forth so i know we all kind of you know we come together to, to try to something bigger than the sum of its parts and and 
you know, we, we all have, everybody has their specialty. Like Sebastian's really into the recording sort of aspect of it and the gear kind of aspect. You know, Ross is excellent with design and sort of keeping an overall tight aesthetic. Mike is just a workhorse of getting shit done and playing his drums, you know, but like a lot of the sort of stuff the behind the scenes stuff, you know, he just works really hard on and I'm sort of, you know, I guess the CEO or whatever, just like, here's the idea. This is what we're sort of going to do. And then we'll figure it out as we go. And everybody steps in and figures it out with me. And it's uh, it's, it's a really good dynamic. Awesome, man. And I'm glad you mentioned a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff because my next question, you know, helping me with my questions, I love it. Uh, you know, in addition to having Alejandro and Joel work on the record, you guys recorded this in your for the first time in your own studio that you made. So I wanted to kind of ask about dark corners and, you know, darker corners and what's that all, you know, what does that mean for the future of the band and maybe other projects you work on? Well, basically, we we kind of got put in a weird situation where we uh, Mike has been doing a lot of our screen printing, you know, printing our shirts and our, our merch and stuff. And so we ended up having a separate screen printing shop and a rehearsal room. And we got a chance to sort of move into this bigger space for a fairly good deal and consolidate them both. And we didn't really, we kind of left before we looked. And when we moved in there, we quickly realized with the other tenants and stuff that it was not going to be feasible to rehearse there. But we were kind of committed, and I was gone while this all went down. So we'd already been there like well over a month. It wasn't like we could just be like, oops, sorry, we're going to leave now. No harm, no foul. And so we kind of looked at our options, and I was like, well, maybe we'll just, you know, Mike's in construction. So we were like, well, maybe we'll just build a rehearsal room. And we started looking at the materials and the cost. And I was like, this is, you know, a lot of money. Fuck. <laughs> so for a little bit more, we can basically just build our own recording studio. And then that was kind of like, well, I guess that's what we're going to have to do because, you know, if we're building, the, the, the way we can raise money for this basically is to use our album budget to build the studio. <laughs> so, we started at the beginning of the year, and it took, you know, this is all uh, obviously while we're still working and dealing with our normal lives and so on and so forth, our families and everything else. And um, so it took a, about three and a half months to build a studio, uh, get all the gear set up and everything else. And then we were left with like 12 days to record. So it ended up being pretty, pretty stressful um, to get it all done, but it, it, it worked out well, and I think for the future, we're going to be able to take things at a more leisurely pace and really, you know, get in and, and fine-tune what we want to do and then, you know, get better as engineers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, because it is our studio, and, you know, it's not designed to be, like, a working, like, come in and record here, but we are already kind of, like, getting a few projects into the studio, and... So it's a good kind of side hustle as well, and it's uh, you know hopefully going to allow us the flexibility to to do more cool stuff that we wouldn't have been able to do before. You know, if we wanted to do a split seven inch or you know like record a track for a compilation really quick, it's something that now we'll be able to do something you know that represents the band the right way and doesn't sound like we just track it on a boombox and be able to just go in in the weekend and bang it out. So. Hopefully it allows us a lot more flexibility and uh, that's a whole new sort of set of skills to master and or problems to solve. (laughs) So, you know, you got to keep challenging yourself somehow, I guess. 
Right on. That's like some next level business acumen <laughs> shit right there that you guys just did, by the way. Like, I hope people appreciate what you just did. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's, it's really funny because it's all the stuff that is like the exact opposite of the reason that I got into doing this in the first in the first place. But it, it, it's going to help us, you know, be able to, to create more music and do it more quickly, more efficiently and more cost effectively and all that kind of stuff. Um, then it's definitely a win. It's just a, it's a weird kind of space to be occupying, I guess, you know, I was like, I just want to be a fucking guitar player. (laughs) Well, unfortunately it's the music business, not the music, not business, you know? Yes. Yes, it is. You know that very well, of course. Oh yeah. As we wind this down, because I want to be respectful of your time always, man. Uh, Oh, no worries. As we get into the best time of the year, Halloween time. What are your go-to horror movies that you, you know, return to over and over? I'm sure there's a bunch of good ones. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, at this point, it's, it's like metal records. It's mostly stuff from, you know, my former years that has stuck with me probably longer than it is healthy. But um, I, for me, I think maybe Reanimator might be my all-time favorite um, because it's, I, I I don't know. It just it hit me at the right time when I saw it as a kid, and it it has a nice kind of sort of lightheartedness to it. Like there's a bit of slapstick in the gore and the violence. It's almost you know, it's a little bit cartoonish, and I think that you know Jeremy Combs gives such a great performance that is you know bordering on being a, a ham, <laughs> but in the right way for the material, you know. Um, and I just remember when I was a little kid, the scene where uh, where Hill takes a severed head and places it between uh, <clears throat> what the fuck is her name? Is it Meg Halsey? Yeah, between Meg Halsey's legs. And I was I remember I was must have been like ten or something, and I just was like, I don't know what you do with your face between a girl's legs, but I really want to find out. And this dude is putting a severed head there, and this is like the coolest thing that I've ever seen in my fucking life. I just remember that thought process distinctly. Um, and there, are, there are definitely some others. Evil Dead 2, uh, something I can watch over and over and over. Uh, Brain Dead by Peter Jackson, again, has a real slapstick sensibility to it. Um, the first couple of Hellraisers are really stuck with me. Great gore effects and the idea of this world of torture and dismemberment is just really fucking cool. Um, the Italian stuff like the Beyond, um, Suspiria, The House by the Cemetery, Deep Red, Phenomena, those are all some favorites. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 and 2, also fantastic, fantastic movies. So, I mean, they're, you know, kind of the basics, but they're, they're the classics for a reason, you know? Word. I never came back personally from seeing that girl put on the hook in one, man. That was it for me. I was like, oh, that's it. I'm I'm a horror fan for life now. That's it. Like, that's it. There's no coming back mentally from that image in my brain. Like, you know. So that's all it takes, you know? <laughs> Just like good riffs, that's all it takes is good gore. Uh, you know, Absolutely. For, for a last question, I knew we were going to chat today, and I had to ask you, because I'm pretty sure one of our very first interviews, we talked a lot about Metallica, and I love asking you Metallica stuff. And, of course, beside the fact that they had the big, I don't know if you're a big symphony guy, they just did the S&M thing uh, up north from you, but... Uh, big story yesterday where Polestar was like, Metallica is possibly the biggest band ever. And it was like, aren't they already? Like, is this a, any doubt? 
like, but um, right. I, right. I know you're a longtime fan. Obviously, you know, it's like Metallica Inc. They have their own thing, but just kind of, you know, as are you looking forward to the next Metallica record? Probably in a couple of years, the way it's going. Yeah, I am. You know, I we my wife is also a fucking Metallica freak. She went to both nights of F and M too. I just saw the second night. She went to the first night. I was like, it's so good. We have to go. She's like, I'm buying you a ticket. I'm like, I don't really, I can't really afford a hundred show. No, we're going. I'm like, okay. Um, so I went, I went and saw the show and everything. And I thought Hardwired, you know, with most bands this far into their career, you know, it's going to be sort of, there's definitely some skip cuts on every record, you know, whether it's Metallica or Iron Maiden or Priest or whoever, you know, once you get into the legacy phase. That's just sort of the way it is. But I thought that Hardwired was, you know, really a strong record, you know, with like six or seven really, really good cuts that I got a lot of play out of. So I think that, you know, they've entered sort of a new confidence. Um, and I think the chemistry that they have with Rob is really, has just been a really positive thing. Um, Dead Magnetic was okay. And the Hardwired was actually quite fucking good. So... I like to think that they're going to acquit themselves well. And I have to also imagine that the end is somewhere in sight to them, you know. Um, no matter what they do, they're going to go out on top. And I think that, you know, when you hear a song like Atlas Rise with those riffs, you can really, they, they have a sense of their own legacy, but also, but in an empowering way, not in a burdensome way. And I think that that was a nice metaphor for that with that song and how great the fucking riffs were and stuff. So I think it should be, it should be cool. And, you know, I think some, one of the things that was eye opening to me with the symphony is that even some of the tracks that some of the, the tracks in the set list, I was kind of raising my eyebrow, my eyebrow about, but they were executed really well. Like Unforgiven three was a track that I didn't care for on the record, but the, with the arrangement of the symphony, I was like, this is actually a fucking good song. Like, holy shit, guys. All right. Uh, underneath that terrible production that you guys had on that record, like, there was some, like, there's some really good ideas here. Like, cool. So I don't think that the tank is just, is dry just yet. And, um, yeah, I'm always, I'm always curious about what they're going to do. You know, I'm never as excited as I was when Justice came out and I was 12, but, you know, I'm from 43 now. So <laughs> it would be abnormal if I was. Right there with you, man. Right there with you. Well, I get certain bands do that for me. I was pumped for Priest, and I was I'm pumped for another Maiden record, like I was when I was a kid. But I agree, it's like you start to, you know, get realistic about. I think a lot of fans are not realistic about their expectations, and then they get angry. I don't know why. <laughs> well, I think Metallica has been the band for fans to get angry at, you know, since the beginning. Because I mean, um, I played with Repulsion for like four years or something, and um, it was great. The Repulsion is like my second favorite band, so it's great for me. And it was really interesting hanging out with Matt and Scott because they're, you know, I guess six, seven years older than I am, maybe eight years older. Anyway, so they're a little bit older, and obviously they were playing Death Metal before just about anybody besides, you know, Possessed, Mantis, and, and Hellhammer. So they had a really interesting take on the evolution of metal in the 80s, and, and it was interesting because... They were like, oh, yeah, fucking fucker the lightning. That's like the sellout album. And I was like, wow, okay. So this has been going on at every stage in their career. Um, you know, they've alienated people um, with every album, with every sort of stride that they've made. And 
you know, it's it's cool to see that they've sort of transcended that at, the, at this point. And, you know, the people that are that are like diehard metal fans still complaining about Metallica. It's like, dude, aren't you like fucking 40? Like, don't you have a job or like a kid or a wife or something better to do than sit around and complain about like whatever these guys are doing? Like, they don't owe you anything. And in terms of, you know, there's endless justifications that I could run through as far as what they've done for their influences and for the scene, it's like, you know, their covers of Diamond Head, I'm, I'm sure, have easily brought, brought Sean Harris and Brian Tatler fucking homes and cars and shit. So it's all they haven't given back to where they come from and recognize that, especially in the last 20 years, they've really come back around to doing that. In the 90s, maybe not so much, but... It's weird that people are still upset about some band, you know? I used to get upset about bands, but I was like 16, then I got laid. And then I also made my own band, so I didn't have to stop caring what riffs Chuck Schulding or Bill Steer were writing. I could write my own fucking riffs. And then I wasn't worried about what they were doing. Easy. Problem solved, right? <laughs> right on. I actually interviewed Brian recently, and he was like, every time I look at my bank account or my house, I say, God bless Metallica. <laughs> So, <laughs> hey man, he knows, and everybody, you know, I'm sure Danzig says the same thing about, you know, Last Caress and everybody else too. Oh, fuck yeah. I mean, that, that opened the doorway to an entire new stage of that guy's career. And it's not that any of those guys aren't talented or don't deserve the money or anything like that, or that they should start James and Mars's dicks, but let's be realistic, you know? That was what exposed all these guys to a whole different audience and, and you know, has helped help their careers no matter what, you know, to whatever degree you want to attribute it, it's, it helps. And the fucking money is real, you know, like the merciful fate money. I, I know, you know, that that made the Metallica med, fate medley made more publishing money to those guys that they'd ever seen in their entire career before that combined. So, and you, you know, it is what it is. You can't eat respect or pay rent with respect. You pay rent with money, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, uh, so it's just interesting to me. Like I said, it's one thing if you're not into Metallica, you haven't liked them in a long time. That's great. Totally get it. They've changed and moved on and their audience has changed and whatever. But to like get personally mad about it, that just bugs me. It's like, man, just come on, dude. Like, <laughs> grow up. Awesome, man. Matt Harvey, one of my favorite people in all of music, let alone metal or death metal, to talk to, man. Thank you so much for hanging out with Ghost Cult. Uh, oh, you're very kind. Thank you, yeah. I appreciate it. Horror is the record. Relapse Records, October 4th. Check it out. Thanks so much for hanging out with Ghost Cult, dude. Cheers, bud. Thank you. Talk soon. Thanks for checking out today's podcast. Follow, like, and subscribe wherever you hear these podcasts. Also check out Ghost Cult Magazine on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And finally check us out at ghostcultmag.com. We're out. Peace.